The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Thank you all for your patience with our technology. Uh, We are continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and we are up to the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Uh, And I got to tell you, this is a tough lesson to teach. Not only is it hard for me having my dad just uh, pass away yesterday, uh, wasn't sure I could be here, but he encouraged me to teach anyway, uh, and so that helped me uh, get ready. Uh, But it's hard to teach something that the entire world knows by osmosis, it seems, right? I don't know anybody that ever memorizes John 3.16. It's like by osmosis, suddenly the King James Version just pops into their brain uh, and everybody can recite it, even if they're not a Christian, it seems like. So uh, we're going to talk about some unique issues, but for me as a teacher, it is much easier for me to teach you something like Habakkuk that you know nothing about. Uh, It's much more difficult for me to teach you the world's most famous Bible verse, so we're going to jump into that. Uh, And I think I've got some application for you and some insight that you may not have had uh, in plumbing the depths of this passage. Uh, The passage is not intended to be by itself, so I'm teaching through verse 22 because that's a commentary, I believe, on the Nicodemus exchange that Christ went through. But it leads to an interesting question because if you're reading through your Bible, some of you have read less letter text for verses 16 through 22. Some of you have black letter. Uh, To me, it's not a big deal because whether it's recording the words of Jesus to Nicodemus or whether it's Jesus speaking through the Holy Spirit to John the writer, it's indistinguishable. So it's clearly the word of God. It doesn't matter whether it's red or black. So don't get hung up if you look over at your neighbor's uh, Bible and it's a different color than yours. I also have to mention in passing that it's interesting to me in the age-old Protestant debate uh, between those uh, that lean towards Calvin uh, and describe salvation as exclusively the province of God and those who lean more in favor of Mr. Arminius that lean more in favor of the human role in salvation. John 3.16 captures the biblical tension because those that tend to lean in favor of Mr. Calvin uh, that would say it's exclusively the province of God gravitate towards for God's love the world he gave. Uh, those that gravitate a little bit more towards Mr. Arminius gravitate towards the whosoever should believe in him. And it perfectly captures the reality that God is the architect and the author of our salvation, but he still gives us the choice to choose. We're not puppets. We have to choose what has been freely given to us. And so it's a wonderful capture that I just wanted to mention by way of illustration because uh, I think it teaches very, very clearly that God is exclusively in charge of our salvation, but it does not free us from the human obligation of accepting uh, the gift that he's freely given to us. Let's jump into this world's most famous passage, John 3.16, and it starts out with the word for. I rarely do a digression on the first word uh, that's really a transitionary word, but it's important here to remind you of the context. Because our word here for the word for, which could also be the word because in Greek, ties us back to verses 14 and 15. And you remember last week where we started on 14 and 15, uh, because 
the story of Nicodemus ends with a reference back to Numbers 21. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him have eternal life. That segues then into John 3.16 by way of explanation. In other words, when you hear verses 14 and 15, you're likely to say, huh? I don't get it. And that's the point. Verses 16 is an explanation, a, a commentary on verses 14 and 15. So if you weren't here last week or you've forgotten over the last seven days, let me give you 60 seconds to recapture it. Numbers 21 gives us the story of the children of Israel walking through the desert. They're bitten by poisonous snakes. They could have cried out, God, give us an anti-venom. God, kill the snakes. God, evaporate the poison. He didn't do any of that. He gives an audio-visual picture, and he tells Moses, build a cross, put a snake on it, hold it up, and those who look on the cross will be saved. And as I taught you last week, it gives us an audio-visual picture to the uneducated slaves in the desert two millennium before, and it gives a picture of what's going on in the life of Christ. Because through the snake on the, the cross held up by Moses, we see the picture of the means of salvation is nothing a human can provide. The means of salvation comes as God's gift. Number two, they had to look to the cross. They couldn't look to a doctor. They couldn't look to uh, a, a shaman. They couldn't look to anybody. You had to look to the cross if you want to be, if you want us to be saved. There's a symbol of sin on it. Remember, from Genesis chapter 2, the symbol of sin was the serpent. And so the symbol of sin is the picture of Christ on the cross, even though he was pure. It's a picture of 100% God, 0% man involved in our salvation. And it's a picture of faith saving us. So that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel of his day, I'm not teaching anything new. This goes back to Numbers 21. This is something Moses showed the children of Israel in the desert. So inevitably, Nicodemus' head would have been spinning. Our head would have been spinning. We wouldn't understand the nexus between the snake on the stick and, and Christ coming or the Messiah coming. And so we get this transition to help us answer those questions. John 3, 16, 17, and 18 is just simply a commentary on that picture. Famous passage, God so loved the world. Now, we take that and we go, okay, that's elementary. Even a kindergarten could understand it. That's true. Even a kindergartner can understand it, but there's some tremendous depths there. First of all, I want everyone to appreciate the inconsistent perceptions of God. Those who are semi-religious, those who are completely pagan, if they're not just completely agnostic, have an image of God that falls into one of two categories. The first image is he's a loving God and he's going to take care of everyone who's earnestly trying to find him. And that's their rationalization for any other world religious idea. Those that have a little bit more refined religious view view God as a God of justice, a God that's going to weigh the scales of justice and weigh their good versus their bad, so their life is all about working their way into God's merit and tilting the scale. So for them, it's trying to do really, really good, so it outweighs, the, in their mind, the little bit of bad in their lives. And so this is challenging that idea. When it says, God so loved the world, it is in your face to those that would have this idea 
of God being 100% loving or being 100% justice, and it starts out on the foundation, he is 100% loving, but we're going to balance that with some other attributes of God. Now, you've got to understand his idea of love. It's agape. Uh, if you've been in church a long time, you're probably very familiar with it, and it differentiates from the other Greek words of love. It's not eros, which is loving somebody because of what they do to you. Uh, it's our description for dating. It's our description for uh, the type of love that is conditional. That's contrasted with phileo. That's conditioned as I love somebody because of what they've already done. They're my family member. They're my buddy from school. They're whatever the fill in the blank is. They've done something in the past or they've got some kind of status, and that's why we love them. Agape is unconditional. As it says on the screen, it's universal, selfless, unconditional love that transcends worldly ties and serves regardless of circumstances. The scriptural use of this word outside of God's love for us is the way a spouse is supposed to love a spouse. It's not conditional on what they do or what they don't do. At least it's not supposed to be. It's best pictured in my research from the oldest recorded use of this word in Greek culture. The oldest artifact we have found capturing this word is from ancient Greece, about 800 years before Christ, when the language was in its infancy. And it appears on a tombstone that a mother wrote for her child. And the word was, how have I loved you? And it wasn't a question, it was a statement. How I have loved you. And it's a picture of this, of a mother of the infant child that's pure, unconditional love. I love you because of who you are. That's the idea of Christ. And, and if we want to cross-reference a couple of verses, there's some great ones here that describes God's great love because we get this idea of God's love. And for us, we've heard it so many times, it loses its power. It's a word that ought to bring us to tears. We're so used to it, we just slide right through it. But a great little cross-reference to Ephesians 2, 2, 4, and 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. So that verse gives us this idea of a great love, and when it uses great, it means greater than we can comprehend, just beyond our wildest use of the word love. We've also got this idea of God's infinite love. A love that not only is beyond our comprehension, but one that permeates our life beyond our comprehension. Ephesians also, verses 3, 18 and 19, uh, Paul says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When it describes breadth, length, height and depth, it's describing our universe. It's describing what differentiates the creation from everything else because our world is differentiated by the three dimensions that we live in, the room you're in, your body, the universe we live in. It's height, breadth, depth, length. Uh, it's describing every aspect of creation is permeated with God's love. So if the love itself is beyond our comprehension, the expanse of the love is our comprehension. You balance that against what he said. God so loved the world. You and I think about that, and we think of the planet. We think of everybody on the planet throughout history. Not what the Greek means. 
The Greek word cosmos is, I've set up on the screen, gives us our meaning when applied biblically is describing the philosophies, which have historically been anti-God, worldviews, lifestyles, ways, priorities, concerns, and value systems that are not in line with the word of God or God's ways or God's character. So it's basically saying God so loved the sinful, ugly, broken world. And at this point, you'd say, wait a minute, didn't he create it? Absolutely, but human beings are the ones that made it fall, Genesis chapter 3. So we've got this idea of God loving what he created even though we messed it up. Now, great little cross-reference on this idea of loving the unlovable is Romans 5 verses 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, while the world was still full of sin, Christ died for us. So it gives this picture that's supposed to grab you and just say, whoa, this is powerful. We've heard it since kindergarten. So for us, as God so loved the world, we just fly past that. It's supposed to grab you as a woe moment that this unfathomable love and its comprehension, unfathomable love and its application for that which was despicable, which just makes us say, whoa, I don't even get it. If you want a New Testament picture, of what this is describing. There's one that just jumps off the pages. When God ran, the story of the prodigal son. In the picture, when Christ tells the story, the father is the picture of God. The prodigal son is us living in sin, has the gift, has the blessing, goes off and blows it all, parties, has the life. He hits rock bottom, he loses everything he's got, he's destitute and despicable, and he comes embarrassingly back to the father to ask if he can work as the slave, and it's the only time in the Bible. In anthropomorphic terms, God runs. Every other time in scripture, what's God doing? He's seated, seated in authority, or while seated in authority, he acts. The picture of the first ver first passage of John 3.16, God so loved the world, is the story of the prodigal son, when God ran. It's a picture we should not be able to wrap our brains around. And that's the whole point. This is so deep, so profound, so significant that you're supposed to just say, whoa, I'm blown away by the very beginning of it. Then it says he gave. And, and we jump through that because our imagery starts with our imagery of Christ. And we think about he gave his son, and you think about gifts and Christmas gifts, our brain go to Bethlehem. That's not what this passage is teaching. Our brain, we say God gave his only son, goes to Bethlehem. Our teaching point here is God's gift was not of a baby in Bethlehem. That's how it starts chronologically because he had to have a human that was 100% God, 100% human. It starts in Bethlehem. But the gift was sending his son to die an excruciating death on the cross as payment for the sin of all mankind. The plan since creation was not Bethlehem. The plan since creation was Calvary. And if you put that into context, that makes his love for the world even more pronounced and even more focused. Cross-reference on this point. 
Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 verse 3 says, This man Christ was handed over to you, preaching, talking to the Jews, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So he's saying it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge before he came and before anybody else there was born. Other cross-references, Revelation verses 13, chapter 8, talks about Christ being slam, uh, slain as the Lamb of God from the foundation of the world. Other cross-reference, 1 Peter chapter 1, 19, talks about uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ foreordained before the foundation of the world. So when it says he gave his only son, don't think Bethlehem, think Calvary. Verse continues, he gave his one and only son. Now, since we all by osmosis, it seems, memorize the King James Version, we lock into the King's English on this, his only begotten son. And that has actually led to an entire denomination of misinterpretation because the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, lock on to that old King's English to say Christ was created. Christ was a created being. In the 1600s, their understanding of Greek was far, far, far more limited than it is today based on all the research and everything that's now known. They gave it the word they could best come up with that maybe transliterates it pretty well, but it doesn't give its proper meaning. Because our Greek word here, monogenesis, is giving us a description of the one and only. Let me explain it. Mono in Greek is only or one. Genos, or genes as it gives us here, means of the same nature or the same kind. So the term in practice was used to describe the firstborn son or the only son. So it would be the way the Old Testament describes Isaac being born to Abraham. It describes Isaac as his only real son. Even though he had Ishmael, it uses that same terminology. He was born. So the King James translator said, eh, that's close enough, we'll call it begotten. That's not right. As I set up on the screen, a better translation is only one of its kind, unique only, but it's not the word begotten because begotten has the idea of human reproduction. And even though he was born of Mary, it's not the right word to describe who he is. So that's why the, the, the translation is, as I've got up on the screen, he gave his one and only son. Now, I wouldn't get too hung up on son. Back when I was teaching you John chapter 1, I gave you the idea of why it describes that. If you're hung up on that and in this idea of, a, of an eternal Jesus, an eternal Christ, uh, go back and listen to the, chat, the, the one I gave you on chapter 1 or come up and talk to me after class. I want to focus on the next little phrase, everyone who believes in him. Two little ideas here. The first one is what does it mean to believe? Because... Pizetuvo or Pizetuo means to believe to the extent of trust. And you got to differentiate that because in the Greek, it's giving you the word that would describe what your brain does before you sit in the chair you're sitting in, right? I believe in this chair, therefore I'm going to sit in it. Looks like it'll hold me up. These chairs hold me up in the past. I know enough about chairs. I can put my faith in it and I can sit down. In English, we have really, really broad, multifaceted uses of the word, and I can believe in somebody in terms of them existing. It doesn't mean I put my trust in them or my faith in them. Great little illustration here. I believe 
in Adolf Hitler. I believe he existed. I believe he was the most reprehensible man in human history, or at least he's up there in the top three. Uh, I can believe all kinds of things about what he did, but I do not believe in Nazism. I do not believe in what he did in terms of its, its rightness. I don't believe in any aspect of his life being anything other than demonically possessed evil. So the fact I believe he existed is radically different than believing in my wife, who I know and trust to take care of me. Radically different concept. With her, I will entrust my medical decisions. With her, I will in check, uh, entrust our bank account. With her, I will entrust all these other things that show you trust somebody beyond just acknowledging I believe in you as a person. So that's what it's trying to give us this idea of whoever believes in him. It's not saying just intellectual assent. It's not saying I recognize Jesus Christ was a wise man. It says, as the Greek word tells us, you acknowledge someone and act upon it. And that's the differentiation. So we get this idea then so that everyone who believes in him and then it continues, will not perish, but have eternal life. Two little ideas here. First of all, the idea of perish. A whole bunch of people either don't believe in hell, and their mind, death, is just an evaporation. You just cease to exist. And in a physical sense, you may be able to argue the accuracy of that, because everything that is you will eventually just deteriorate, just evaporate. But others have the idea that it's just a great party. If earth here without God was a great party, then the uh, uh, future life without God will just be a party. And for them, it's the idea of jet skiing on the lake of fire, right? It's just a continued party. It's just a keg party with all their fun friends. Both ideas scripture will not recognize in the slightest. Because the idea biblically is that, well, our bodies are temporal, our souls are not. Your soul was created eternal. And your soul will remain eternal unless God does something else with it. And the description of perishing, because this whole idea has nothing to do with the body. Remember, Nicodemus's goal was, how does my soul spend eternity in heaven. That's the question Jesus answers in verse 3. You got to be born again. But he's describing here not our bodies, but our souls. And his use of the word perish does not give any possibility. It's going to be a party next to the lake of fire with all your friends. The synonyms for this Greek word include to be destroyed, to be no more, to not be there, to fade away, uh, to not be found, to be eliminated. And I gave you there upon the screen multiple other cross-references in Scripture that say to perish is to perish. Now, later in the Gospel of John, we're going to get a lesson on what this means. Literally, what happens? Is it eternity in isolation? Is it divine death penalty to your soul? We're going to go deep on that later in the book of John. I'm just introducing the point here. It's perish. I'll tell you what it means later. But he contrasts that with everlasting life. So he describes it in contrast to a phrase that when our brain hears it, it immediately jumps to heaven, right? And we don't take a 21st century present view of what it means today to have eternal life. 
I want you to pause for a second and understanding John 3.16 to think about just for a second, what does it mean today when I've got a promise of eternal life? That ought to be pretty profound because the idea that as a believer in Jesus Christ, I've got eternal life has to shape the way you live seven days a week. It's got to shape the way you view your job. It's got to shape the way you view your spouse. It's got to shape the way you view problems in life. It's got to shape the way you view stresses in life. It's intended to make us prioritize the things we experience in this temporal life, knowing they're going to have memories in our everlasting life. They're going to have ramifications in our everlasting life. They're going to give us perspectives in our everlasting life. And that has got to shape the way we live today. Greatest quote I've ever found on this is from one of my favorite authors, a guy named Oz Guinness. Oz is awesome. Read his books if you're bored of something to read. But he gives us perspective on this and he says, the real meaning of eternal life is a life today that can face anything it has to face without wavering. Why? Because you know you're protected. If we take this view, life today becomes one great romance, a glorious opportunity for seeing marvelous things all the time. God is disciplining us to get us into the cent this central place of power. It's describing power over circumstances, power over what we would consider the bad things of life, and it's basically viewing with a heavenly perspective that which you see today. Now, some things that you experience today you can see as an echo of heaven. When a baby's born, huge echo of heaven. Uh, the day you get married, echo of heaven. Christmas morning, echo of heaven. Uh... Saturday mornings when you just get to relax, echo of heaven, right? The joys of life. For everybody, you got a different thing that triggers your joy of life. This is saying, if that's an echo of heaven, why limit it to a point in time when you're happy? This is saying in the depths of despair, in the circumstances that you're wondering, God, how are you going to get me through it? Whatever the circumstance is, this is saying with the perspective of eternal life, you can have power over the otherwise negativity that if we're just temporal can really make us depressed. But if my idea is I've got a circumstance, I don't know how I'm going to get through, but it's an opportunity to share my faith with somebody else so that they can join me in eternity. That's power over a tremendous negative in your life. It's I can take this aspect of life I'm not very proud of to relate to somebody else and help them along in their walk towards their eternal life with Christ. It's just, it's an idea that Oz describes of just tremendous power. I, and I said Oz again, it's Oswald Chambers, forgive me, awesome writer. Uh, John 3, 17. So we get through 3, 16, and we get to 17, and he puts it a little bit more into perspective. He said, for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. It circles back to my point on what kind of God is he? Is he a loving God or a judgmental God? And this is starting to give us the perspective that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world, which means he sent him as a means of lovingly satisfying his judgment. 
He is still 100% judgmental. He's still 100% loving. And the way you reconcile those two is the bridge that the cross of Jesus Christ provides. Because if God is 100% loving and everybody that's on the right path gets to go to heaven, then you get to spend eternity with some people that you're going to find pretty despicable. Because you could look at it and say, well, why doesn't Charles Manson deserve to be judged? Why doesn't the guy I had up on the screen earlier, Hitler, deserve to be judged? And the answer is, they do. You can't have a 100% loving God or you got some problems with who gets into heaven. But then if he becomes 100% judgmental and he's going to weigh Manson and Hitler, guess what? You and I don't shake up that well in front of a holy, perfect, pure God. Because then it's just a matter of degree. And your argument is, well, I'm better than Manson, I'm better than Hitler, so let me in. And that's not a pretty good argument when you've got a holy and pure God. How do you reconcile those two? The cross of Jesus Christ. Our teaching point here is the Bible doesn't allow the reader to blame God for the desperate plight of humanity because the evils of the world are generated by either evil people, of which there is no defense for, or a fallen world where bad things happen like hurricanes and cancer and other things. But it doesn't allow you to view God with blame for any of that because he sent Christ as a bridge to get us into eternal life where none of those things are a concern anymore. So it doesn't allow us to blame God. We get into verses 18 and it says, anyone who believes in him is not condemned. And here I want you to notice the tense of the verb. Because if we were writing and this was only about heaven, we would use a future tense verb. Anyone who believes in him will not be condemned when they get to heaven. Anyone who believes in him will not be condemned when they face judgment. Does not let us do that. He says, anyone who believes in him today is not condemned. How can that be the case? Our teaching point there is pretty simple. Entrance into heaven is not determined by the amount of good or bad that a person does. But on the simple issue of in whom do they put their faith? The reason I'm not condemned today, even though I still sinned yesterday, will sin today, and will sin tomorrow, is because the good things I do and the bad things I do do not get weighed in heaven. Heaven is determined by whom I place my trust, Jesus Christ. And what he did takes care of all the sin in my life, past, present, future. So that means a present tense reality of a lack of condemnation. Great cross-reference. Romans chapter 1, sorry, Romans chapter 8, gives us a whole chapter on this idea with footnotes, or I should say bookends, chapter, or verses 1 and chapter, or verses 33 of chapter 8, 8, 1 and 8, 33, says, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Jesus Christ. That's even more implicit, explicit than John is. There is no condemnation now for those in Jesus Christ. Verse 33 tells you why. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So if God views us, past, present, and future, through the lens of Jesus Christ, it means my sin is not the standard of whether I get into heaven. I get in through Jesus Christ. 
does not mean I can do anything I want. It's a different lesson we're going to get to here in a second, but it doesn't give us the ability to do that. Now, for a non-believer, securely stating that you as a believer are assured of heaven is the single most offensive thing you can say to them. I don't want anyone to lose this because when you share your faith, to you, this is good news. Today, there's no condemnation. To a non-believer, you've just insulted them because what you have said to them when you said, I'm not judged today, in their mind, you've set yourself up as a standard of righteousness. If you live a life like I do, despite this sin and that sin and this aspect of my past and that aspect of my past, I know I'm still going to heaven. To them, that's arrogant. To them, that's presumptuous. To them, that is offensive because you're saying, I'm now the standard of heaven and I'm confident I'm getting in. And they're going to say, you're an arrogant jerk or you're delusional because they don't get it. In their mind, it's all about how good you are. The converse point is for a believer, doubting whether you as a believer are assured of heaven is the most offensive thing you can say to God. If you say, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, so I need to be really, really good, you're saying to God, I've got some concerns about your plan, and I got some concerns about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So it is just as offensive for a believer to doubt the plan of God and doubt the sufficiency of Christ as it is for a non-believer to look at your assurance of salvation and say that's offensive. Both ends of the spectrum lead to dangerous places. The middle spot, the place we're supposed to live, is what John tells us according to Christ, what Paul tells us according to Christ that I just read to you from Romans, and that is there's no condemnation now. Converse of that is anyone who does not believe is already condemned. And you read that and you say, well, are you telling me if someone's not a believer, there's no hope for them to come? Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our life lesson here to start with is human sin nature makes procrastination one of our most demonstrated character flaws. Your sin nature is what makes your friend, when you share your faith with them, want to kick that can down the road. They want to put it off. They don't want to make that decision for whatever reason. Maybe they got some more fun sinning to do. Maybe they got some other issues they got to resolve. Maybe they got somebody they're worried about not liking them or not keeping their job or not keeping a family relationship. Who knows? Humans will come up with a thousand reasons to procrastinate. The life lesson is if you're trying to share your faith and someone wants to put it off, it's not you. It's their sin nature. Sin nature makes procrastination inevitable. But our teaching point here is because we are born condemned. Bible says I'm conceived in iniquity, I'm born in iniquity. Because we are born condemned, we remain in a state of condemnation until we transfer our trust for our eternal state from ourselves to Christ. Now, don't go off on a side tangent on whether infants are going to heaven. They are, it's a different issue for another day. I'll explain that when it's the right time. But for this point, the issue of being born condemned from the time you have a consciousness of your right and wrong, from the time you've got a consciousness of who God is and who Jesus Christ is, there is condemnation from that point in time until 
God works in us in a miraculous way, and we transfer our trust from our eternal state, from ourselves, to Christ, because the lost have their faith in themselves. Their faith is, I'm either going to work my way to heaven, or I'm going to work my way to be happy because this is all there is, and it's just a poof of nothingness after I'm gone. That's trust in themselves and trust in their own intellect and their own faith basis or lack thereof. When you reach the point of saying, I'm going to go away from that, I'm going to trust Christ, then you got something totally different. Now, other teaching point. The future of judgment of non-believers will not be a review of the good and the bad they've done in their lives, but a nanosecond inquiry of in whom they've placed their faith. When a non-believer stands in front of Jesus Christ after death, there is no review of what they've done. The sin in their lives is irrelevant. The good in their lives is irrelevant. The message of John 3.16 through 21 is they stand in front of God with one question that can be answered in a nanosecond, in whom do you believe? If you believe in Jesus Christ, just like for us as a believer, the sin, the good evaporate. And it's a question of in, who, in whom you have believed. Verse 19, this then is the judgment. In other words, he's saying, if we're talking about judgment, let's talk about the people here today. The light has come into the world. We saw in John chapter one who that is. That's Jesus. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Because you finish chapter 18 and you should say as a believer, this is the easiest thing in the world. Why doesn't everyone believe? To a non-believer, they get to this point and they're like, I really don't understand it. I'm going to go back to living my life. And the picture here is that may not make sense, but they're living in darkness. They can't see the truth. They can't see the light. We talked about in John chapter 1. That is a gift from God. The gift of him in Jesus Christ is the gift of illumination, to see reality as it exists, to see the reality of who Christ is, see the reality of the sinful world and the lifestyle they lead. So John is saying here the judgment is this has been God's plan through eternity. Don't get frustrated that it's some failing by you because people you love just don't get it. And it's saying they love the darkness. They're, they're gravitating towards evil in the idea of rejecting Jesus Christ. Transitions to verse 20. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. This idea of the lost loving the darkness does not mean that bad things don't happen in daylight. It just means a truth that every police officer understands. More bad things happen at night. That's why there's more street patrol at night than there are in the daytime. It's why I don't ride my bike at night. Not only do I want to be seen, but if I ride my bike at night and somebody comes along in a car or truck, they're likely just for fun to throw something out the window and hit me with it, right? The, the wickedness of darkness lets people live in this illusion that they can't be seen so they can do things they think is fun. Uh, it's why so much of, of society that's decadent takes place in the darkness, but John says in verse 21, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let me break that up in two parts. On this idea of coming to the light, 
it's playing off on what it said in verse 19 and 20 about who the lightness is and what the darkness is. And it basically says for believers, we relish those things where the light of truth is shown. What does that mean in practical daily application? Teaching point. To the faithful believer, transparency is a source of comfort and not a source of fear. That's why Natalie knows my password to my phone. I got to have a password on it for attorney-client privilege. The law says, the ABA says. Uh, Natalie knows my password. She can look at anything on my phone anytime she wants. My computer right here, this computer is owned by my law firm and my IT director has electronic access to it 24 hours a day. Anything I search in web history, anything I save, it can be accessed. Guess what? The transparent life is the most freeing thing in the world. I don't have any worry about my wife wondering what's on my phone or my partner's wondering what's on my computer because they've got access. Transparency means I've got comfort. It means I don't have fear. So the idea of a believer is if there's transparency even in our failings, there's comfort in that because I know in the fact that things might embarrass me might actually mean I can have a conversation with a buddy that's got the exact same shortcomings. If I've got something in my past I'm embarrassed about, it means that's a relating point to somebody that has the exact same shame over that issue in their past. So the idea of light is something that believers want to run to. It means even of things I'm ashamed of, shine the light on it because it can help other people. It becomes a part of your testimony, not something to be ashamed of. It ends by saying that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. That means when we run to the light and we want to do things like be transparent with my wife, be transparent with my law partners, it means I'm not doing it so I could stand up and say, aren't I a great husband? Aren't I a great law partner? That's not what it's saying. It's saying anything you do can be shown for other people to be accomplished not by us but by God. In other words, my peace at being transparent isn't because I'm a good guy. It's because I prayed God give it to me because otherwise I'm scared to death. The peace I have in being open with you guys and sharing as I teach is not something that just I can do easily. I got to pray God give me to do it because my, my human nature makes me want to not share. It's the idea how I can have a poor self-image and have the idea that I don't have an MDiv or a PhD in theology or biblical studies. I don't think I was particularly a good student. I don't think I've got a lifestyle that justifies me being up here because I'm just a lawyer that works hard and just tries to keep up with life. But it means when I do those things, I can point to God and say, it's not me, it's God that lets me do it. It's not my insight, it's what God gives me the ability to say because I talked to him about it before I teach. It's that I've got the ability to do something because God gives me words. God gives me an opportunity. God gives me ideas on how to structure and say things. God gives me resources to go look at and find things to share with you. And I can point to it and say, it's not me. I'm just an idiot that doesn't even have an MDiv. But I can share it so it's God's glory, not my glory. Teaching point. Who gets the credit for the good things you do? It's God. And if it's not God, you got some prayer and some maturity to work through because it's supposed to be God, and that's the point of John 3, 21. Let me give you some application to end on. Let me tell you a story that my dad told me about to end. Uh, last Sunday after I left class, I went to the hospital and spent eight hours with my dad. 
best Sunday I've spent with my dad in years. He wanted to know about class. He wanted to know about what I was teaching. I said, it's John 3.16. Can anything be more difficult? He said, let me tell you a story. As was mentioned earlier, my dad was named after Dwight L. Moody. Dwight Moody is one of the greatest American preachers ever born, ever lived. Uh, my grandfather uh, considered himself a student of Moody and said to God after having three daughters, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. <laughs> so naming him Dwight L. Moody was my grandfather's way of telling God, thank you for giving me a son. My dad studied Moody his whole life, and he told me the story I'd never heard in my life until my dad told me. When Moody was 40, he traveled to England, and he met a 20-year-old preacher named Henry Morehouse. And Morehouse was an up-and-comer, and Moody said something he probably shouldn't have said. He said, if you ever make it to Chicago, come to my church, and I'll let you preach. Thinking the guy, he's 20 years old, he'll never get to the United States. Fast forward six months, he gets a telegram from Morehouse saying, just landed in New York, I'll be there on Saturday. Look forward to preaching. Moody said to his staff, what do I do? I told this guy, if you're ever in Chicago, I'll let you preach. I don't even know him. I don't know his theology. I don't know his training. I don't know anything about him. And something inside of him said, I got to be a man of my word. I got to let him teach. Moody said, I got to go out of town and go do a revival down in Champaign. I'll be back on Friday. And he just said, I got to pray Morehouse doesn't mess it up. <laughs> he let him preach on Sunday. It was so popular, he did it again on Monday. It was so popular, he did it again on Tuesday. It was so popular, he did it again on Wednesday night. It was so popular, he did it again on Thursday night. Without even having a plan of revival, they had a revival. Moody shows up on Friday morning and says, how's the church been going this week? And he says, Morehouse has preached to a sold-out building every single day since you left. And Moody said, you got to be kidding. What's he preaching? And the answer was John 3.16. And he goes, okay, so he preached John 3.16 on Sunday. What did he preach on Monday? John 3.16. What did he preach on Tuesday? John 3.16. What did he preach on Wednesday? John 3.16. So Moody says, I got to show up and see this myself. So Moody shows up on Friday, not even telling Morehouse he's coming, sat in the congregation, and he said, please turn in your Bibles to John 3, chapter 16, or verse 16. And he said, it's been a success this week, why leave? <laughs> and Moody said it was the turning point in his ministry because in his prior years of ministry, he had stopped teaching the love of God. He was the best fire and brimstone pe preacher the post-Civil War era had ever heard. But he lost the idea of the love of God. And he said on his deathbed, the most significant influence in his ministry was the young man from England that taught him John 3.16. <laughs> You wonder how that's possible. I'll end on this, and I know we're a minute or two over. My dad told me about this one that goes back a couple of decades. Final theological sharing of my dad to you. Uh, I don't know who did this, but it's back from the 70s. My dad preached on this, and he told me about it, and I was able to go find it with some research. It's the idea of every phrase in the Gospel of John is describing the greatest thing we could possibly fathom. It starts out, for God, the greatest lover. So loved, describing the greatest degree 
the world the greatest company that he gave that's the greatest action his only begotten son that's the greatest gift that everyone that's the greatest opportunity the whole world who believes that's the greatest simplicity of a message into him that's the greatest attraction would not perish that's the greatest assurance any human being could ever have but that's the greatest difference would have that's the greatest promise we could ever find eternal life the greatest blessing we could ever receive that's why it's the most well-known verse in the English language you just thought it was great because it was simplistic and described Matthew Mark Luke and John in one sentence if that was your view it's not inaccurate that's why a kindergartner can be moved by it but that explanation is why I described the lesson the greatest paragraph in the history of human language you got it next week the preacher who lost his congregation John the Baptist part two you can read ahead the rest of chapter three we'll knock it out next week let's pray gracious Heavenly Father we thank you so much for this lesson we thank you for the legacy of my father that poured into me for five plus decades and poured into this class for the years that we've been together. We thank you for the influences that he had, the influences that we get through his namesake, Dwight Moody, that we learned about this morning, and the truths of your scripture that go back to when John penned it. A simplicity that is beyond comprehension, a depth that is beyond comprehension. And we just simply say thank you. Thank you for that love we can't fathom. Thank you for that gift that we cannot comprehend. Thank you for that promise and security that transforms our lives today. It's not for our blessing, for our benefit, but for your honor and your glory because you're the architect of all of it. And as your humble servants, we say thank you to your honor and your glory through power that we don't possess, but through the power of Jesus Christ. So be it. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.